and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Welcome to episode 19 of Why Make. Today we are talking with Oakland, California-based artist Adrian Siegel, a data sculptor, designer, and teacher. Adrian's sculptural work draws on objective scientific data ranging from snowpack measurements and tidal charts to glacial movements. Adrian then uses this information to create visually engaging sculptures that inform us about changes in our natural environment. After growing up in the Boulder, Colorado area, Adrian received her BFA from the California College of the Arts, where she currently teaches. Adrian has intentionally sought out residencies and visiting artist positions that allow for direct field experience and the education and data collection such intense research provides. Adrian has just recently finished teaching an online class at the Anderson Ranch Art Center about 3D modeling through a process called photogrammetry. Make sure you go to her website, adriansiegel.com, to discover more about the artwork we talk about on this episode. We have a great talk with Adrian today about LIDAR, photogrammetry, the importance of experience and place in her work, and some of the techniques she employs to turn data into sculpture. Here's our informative and data-driven conversation with Adrian Siegel. We're here with Adrian Siegel on Why Make, and uh, welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, Eric Walken, the other host in the other half of the Why Make Castle. Um, so, Adrian, we like to start off every show with just kind of a loose question. Um, we call it the why make question. It's a, what was your first memory of make? And it can be as narrow or broad as you want. Just go with it. Good question. I, um, I sort of define making as, as more physical objects. So mm-hmm. I was always into art classes when I was like a kid um, in like middle school and elementary school, but I never actually physically made objects until I got to college. So I'd say like, yes, I have earlier experiences of making things, but I never learned how to, you know, work a machine or, you know, use a cordless drill until I got to college. And and first semester, I took an introductory furniture design class at California College of the Arts where I went to school. So what were some of those earliest memories? Like, I mean, even if it was something like, you know, making like, mud castles and dirt castles or tree houses or you know something that's not as formal as you know making at school yeah less formal okay um that's a good question I mean I didn't grow up near a beach so I didn't have a lot of sand castle experience but we went to the beach a lot so when I was there I was definitely digging in the sand um but yeah I guess you know I've I it's not making earliest experiences are just a lot of being out in nature because I grew up in Colorado. So being in the mountains and just experiencing being outside in insanely beautiful places is, is early experiences for sure. Um, but that's not really related to making per no, se. But it, but it makes sense coming from you considering what we're going to talk about and your, where you've gone with things. Yeah. Right. And it's certainly a part of your formative background because the, the core of like, corollary question i can get that word out is when did you when do you think you actually decided you wanted to become a maker i mean was that a part of college or was that was was taking furniture design sort of experimental in college or did you i went to art school because uh 
I didn't want to go to a standard university and study something that I wasn't as interested in. Um, I didn't want to have a conventional like education and art school seemed like a great um, alternative in a way. So that was a conscious choice. Yeah. And I was, it was really support. My dad really supported me in that. I think he kind of um, saw an affinity for art early on in my career. And I had, you know, I had one little like competitions and stuff in like middle school and high school for little projects that you do more in art class. It's all kind of derivative, like work. You're just figuring out how to actually make things. In right. any Everybody capacity. has the same assignment. Exactly. Everybody everybody makes the same house or whatever, you know. Yeah, that. that, um, So he actually uh, arranged to to put me in a pre college program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City when I was fifteen, which is where you basically go to an art school over the summer for maybe three or four weeks and take classes to see how it feels like to be in art school if you are considering going to college or university for art. Art camp. Exactly, exactly. But you're living in the dorms and you have like peers and you have some freedom. So I basically got to run around New York City and then go to drawing and painting classes all day. And it was um, really, really fun. I knew I didn't want to live in a place like New York City. It was a bit too too far down a, a spectrum <laughs> to urban life that I wasn't quite in, interested in, but it um, it did interest me enough to go to art school for you know when I was eighteen and applying to colleges and and California was just a much better fit culturally for me and my extended family are all from California, so my grandparents were here, a couple aunts and uncles. Um, we came here every summer. It was a really easy transition to go from Colorado to California. Were either of your parents artists and or slash scientists? Because obviously that works into uh, mm, no. <laughs> where you go later. No. no. Um, I think that influenced uh, my, my father's side of the family. My grandfather was a civil engineer, and he worked a lot doing structural engineering for um, – all over the world for like big architects. So he, um, he, he was one of the people who helped IM pay get certified to do um, his architecture in the United States and, and worked with IM pay on a few buildings. And I don't think any of that really caught up to me until later in life, but everyone on my grandfather's side of the family, he was Italian. He's a very much like a, head of the family kind of guys. Um, and they were Catholic. So they had seven children. So I have, you know, my father's family is fairly large and almost all of them are in engineering in some capacity. So my father's an electrical engineer. There's an audio engineer. Um, three of my aunts work in engineering. Two of them do. And my brother is in architecture. So I think somehow that influence kind of trickled down. Well, absolutely. It was surrounding uh, you the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, you don't. I, you never really realize those things when you're growing up because you're just like, oh, this is just how it is. And um, I think only later on, I, I really it hit me that that did have an influence. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's interesting because that sort of leads into my next thought, which is, you know, one of the through lines of this podcast has been that many of the many of the guests have mentioned that you know a lot of their draw to making and creativity is problem solving. Mm. And that's what engine that's what engineering is. That's what science is. I mean, and that's, you know, that's my main draw because, uh, 
you know, interestingly enough, I grew up with my father being a biophysicist oh. and growing up in his lab. And, you know, I mainly hung out with his lab tech and we made stuff in it. You know, he had an incredible workshop, but the whole draw was the problem solving. And all my siblings became artists, not a, you know, they, they all dra- dabbled in the sciences like for seconds and then they all became artists. My brother was a dancer. My sister's a painter. My other sister is a writer and, uh, you know, does audio documentary. That's so, so cool. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not surprising to me that the ties between science and art are so similar because it's, it's, it's about process and it's about problem solving. So I'm just sort of curious what your take is on that in your work. Well, and I would say working in a lab and working in a studio have a lot of similar threads as well. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't exactly know where my interest in science specifically came from, but I have... Um, I had a few bad science teachers in high school (laughs) (laughs) that, that may have um, dissuaded me from going down that path, even though I may have had an affinity for it. So, um, you know, no regrets, no looking back. I'm, I'm so happy I ended up where I am. And I know that I could never have a job that didn't involve using my hands and building physical um, objects in some capacity. Um, but I also found in, in the field of furniture design that problem solving for building structure and for making functional objects was never enough of a conceptual interest and intellectual interest for me to want to do that full time either. And that is probably where trying to tie in my other interests in science or in data or in knowledge and the natural world into building projects um, became more of an interdisciplinary um, practice. It sounds like kind of how I feel about it too. Um, I'm going to back up real quick to kind of echo what Eric said about, you know, scientists versus artists, parents and, my mom is a clay artist, so I had that around me, but my dad's a statistician. And <laughs> he's a, well, he's an epidemiologist that worked for NIOSH and the CDC. So he was always collecting data on all sorts of stuff. On, I mean, when, when this whole epidemic came along, he's like totally schooled in the 1918 flu pandemic. And he's wow. like, like, I saw this coming. It's like I've known about it since the 80s. And it's neat to, to see that come through and Eric and myself and you and just that that combination of it's almost like a yin and a yang like data versus art and science versus art it's a it's it's an interesting string and then so I'm going to jump back to your talking about you wanted more out of your furniture I'm kind of like that too it's like oh this is really neat it's fun to build a table but I want to do so much more and have this table say so many more things and well, the, that push-pull, I think, uh, between building functional objects and building non-functional objects. I mean, I think, uh, you know, after building functional objects for 25 years, I couldn't do it anymore. So I, I you mm. know, even though I have zero training as a sculptor, I just woke up one morning and said, I really don't feel like making objects that do anything anymore. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, try and become a sculptor. And 
and that's really what I'm in the middle of. But yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I, I understand that, and I think, you know, the, the interesting thing to talking about woodworkers is, you know, really discovering the possibilities of the medium. I mean, even though we're all trained in X, or a lot of us are trained in X, that's really just our access point. And mm -hmm. it's just, good you know, you it. branch off from there into all the different places. And, and that sort of perfectly dovetails into my next question, which is, you know, you're trained as a furniture maker. Um, but when was your first inkling to, to sort of meld that with, with data and data science and say, this is a path that looks like it's going to be, you know, yield some fruit and go down. I mean, what was your, what was your first inkling of that? What, did that happen with the title datum piece or did that happen before that? And, uh, and not to play too much inside baseball, well, as we go down this, I'll, we'll, one of us will describe the title datum piece because I think it's really worth describing in terms of as, as much as you can on, on the radio, <laughs> um, because it's an, it's an exciting piece and it was a groundbreaking piece. Okay. Well, before I get to the title datum piece, I want to go back to something you just said, because um, you were talking about how function is a very clear purpose for an object or, or a piece of furniture. But I think I've more recently been pushing up against the idea that that there are other purposes that may not be as concrete or as obvious um, that I think sculptures can serve. And that's really where I've been exploring more about like the physical representation of data. Um, because just because it's physical doesn't mean it has to have a function. And to get back to what you said, Rob, there's so many times early on when I was still trying to design furniture. Um, and it still happened because I, I teach at the, the college I went to, yeah. I teach introduction to furniture design mm -hmm. and that's where they designed their first table. And there's so many times where students come up with a really cool idea yeah. for this crazy shaped thing that's gonna be the legs. And then they just stick a flat top on it because it has to have a flat top to be a table. And I really just, I, I found in my own practice early on I hit that limit so many times where I was like I have this really cool idea but then it has to be functional so I have to make it have a flat top it just kind of killed the idea and there was this constant tension between like a beautiful evocative weird form and the idea that it still needs to be able to be in someone's living room so they can put their coffee cup on it and I just yeah, so um, that's kind of the, the tides table um, was where I first discovered using scientific data. And it actually stems back more from being in a really beautiful natural landscape. Um, when I was in school, um, I, you know, the, the final year of your education in furniture design at CCA is a thesis project where you research and design a body of work on a central theme. And that was the first point in my time at school where I was allowed to do whatever I wanted in terms of concept um, and fabrication. And, you know, previous classes to that are about learning a specific technique. So when I finally was at this point where like it was open to whatever I wanted to do, um, that's when I started doing research into things like visual illusions and encoding and codes and how um, ideas are communicated 
through visual form. And at the same time, I visited this site on the coast of San Francisco um, called the Sutro Bathhouse. And it used to be this bathhouse um, that was built in 1896. That was like the largest indoor swimming pool built right on the cliffs. So the pools for these, um, there are seven pools. They were all recirculated tidal water. So it was salt water pools. And um, if you look them up online, there's some really cool photos of what this building used to be like. It's no longer there, but the ruins are there. And now it's run by Golden Gate State Park. So you can go walk around and see like just the very last bits of these like pools with concrete walls. And yeah, and if actually just to interject for a quick second uh, and plug another podcast, there is a wonderful design podcast called 99% Invisible uh, with Roman Mars, who actually used to work with my sister. And one in, I think in the early, in the first season or two of 90, 99% Invisible, is there's a whole episode on those bathhouses and it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think what really struck me, and this all happened kind of in retrospect, what struck me about that landscape is it's insanely beautiful. It's right on the coast. And what was once harnessed for the purposes of human recreation, these tide pools are now slowly being taken back by the tides. And that just really made me think, oh, like the tides are these huge force that's happening at all times in the world. Yeah, it's a very crazy, beautiful natural phenomena. And I just wanted to understand more about how they worked. And that's what led me to online research, finding the NOAA's Historic Tide Archive. You can search um, data by station back, you know, as long as the station's been around. So yeah, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, Fun fact, most of their funding comes from um, the Department of Commerce, because Weather is so much about shipping things. Yeah, it's yeah. Learned that recently. Anyways, um, you can search like tide tide data back throughout history, and it turns out the station in San Francisco is one of the longest continually operating stations. Um, but if you start looking into tides, obviously, um, the tide patterns ebb and flow uh, on a monthly cycle because it's based on where the moon is in relation to the sun. So every time the moon makes a full rotation around the earth, um, the cycle repeats. So I, I ended up figuring out some of the constraints of these patterns and selected 29 to 30. It's actually 29 and a half days that the moon takes to get around the earth of of daily tide charts and then bending them in flat bar steel and making this sort of coffee at least, table. At least one um, lady thought it was a coffee table. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, it's, it's a coffee table. Uh, a, a walnut framework um, that holds up these um, bent flat bar, essentially tide charts um, so that you can in one go see a full month of tide charts, tide cycle. It's a 3D graph is really what it is. It's a three-dimensional graph of the tides of this specific area over the course of a of a lunar month. Yeah, and two of the dimensions are time. So from the front you have the daily cycle and then from the side it's like stacked so there's a full was, month. I think that was mm-hmm. the first piece of yours that I actually saw. I I have a piece in 500 tables as well and when I got it in the mail from Lark, I was like, "What?" on earth is that on the front cover? And I think I met you shortly, either before or after that at, at Penland. It was, I think it was at the ranch. Cause I, was, no, I, I only went to the ranch, the ranch in 2011. That's the only time I've been. So it had to be Penland. 
Really? So regardless of that, I mean, I, I remember, I think just seeing that table and just being blown sideways by it. And I still, I, I honestly don't know the dimensions of it. We're talking coffee table size, but is it, is it that size or is it bigger? It looks like it could be so like giant. I don't know if I should say now. I well, like <laughs> yeah, preserve, preserve I, the I illusion. It. It's, it's this. Yeah. It's, it was, it's the coolest cover on that. Yeah. That was, that was, thank uh, you. I so it, it got me like on I mean, to be completely honest, that p- your piece of conceptual furniture made me start realizing that furniture doesn't have to be furniture. It can be so much more. And seeing that your piece and also, um, oh, shoot, I'm going to I'm totally blanking on. He's a San Francisco furniture maker as well, who does story furniture. John Grew Sheridan. I don't know John Grew Sheridan. Oh, you don't. He he came up and wrote and it's really hard to find. Um an article called story furniture and it's basically about you know just that telling stories through furniture conceptual furniture um and he did it i believe from the perspective of being a vietnam vet and telling stories to help with that experience and to help get through that experience some just being able to tell a story and you're telling a story in a different way i mean you're you're telling a story that's like can be hundreds of years thousands of years old that's coming up from the land and and collecting and I'm not going to say manipulating, but collecting and and categorizing and figuring out um, just how to, how to represent that. I I think one of the, and I don't know if I'm going to jump ahead here or what, but you know, Eric and I were trying to figure out, no, I guess I'm not about title datum. Just, okay. So you've got this information. Do you stick to that information for your shapes and the aesthetic quality of it? Or do you go, oh, this line would look better here. Let's do that to have it actually kind of work aesthetically. I stick as close as humanly possible to the accuracy of the data. There are certain, and and data scientists do this too. There are certain pieces where you filter out anomalies to get more continuity in a form. And I've done that simply for the fact of like, it would be impossible to build unless I removed that little blip that was like an early snowfall in the season that doesn't change the view of this overall pattern. But overall, I stay as accurate to the data as possible. It's easier with something like a tide chart, but uh, every data set ends up looking slightly differently. Um, So you, you, and as the designer, as the person visualizing it and making those choices, um, I have some agency in saying, oh, it should be scaled this big versus this big so that the yeah. next one is like well, not- working out of the confines of scientific research. As an artist, you're able to do that. Right. So basically, you're really using a scientific methodology in the sense that you are trying to, what's the word? You're trying to, you're taking the curves in everything and you're trying to normalize them for any errant data as opposed to, Probably my instinct is that I would make an aesthetic decision and go, well, I see that blip there, but I don't really like how that blip looks. <laughs> and I want to, I want to smooth the curve. That's the, in CAD technology, it's called, uh, you know, smoothing the curve, you know? So you wouldn't nest, you're smoothing the curve based on a, based on a statistical um, evaluation as opposed to smoothing the curve based on an aesthetic evaluation? It definitely, um, I wouldn't say that so much. I would say it depends on the data set and ultimately whatever the idea that's driving 
representing that data set will take precedence. So if I'm, you know, like the example I'll use is the um, cabinet that I made that shows snowfall data for 30 years for a site in um, the Sierra Nevadas. So if, um, if the overall concept is to show this long-term trend in snowfall data from year to year, so 30-something years, I think there's 31 years of data in there to see how much snow we had from year to year. And some years, California is an extremely variable water climate, so some years are very dry compared to others. It can change five-fold. So in that case, some of the drawers were were tiny. They were only a quarter-inch deep. Right, yeah. So I was going to, so I'm looking at a picture of it right now. And uh, just to, uh, again, uh, inform our listeners a little bit. So this is called the Snowwater Equivalent Cabinet. And it is 31 drawers um, stacked high. And I don't know, what's the total height? It's like six feet. It's about as tall as me. So maybe 68 inches. Right. We'll put it, put that on our website. And essentially the data is are, I hate to be coarse about this, but data is this carved birch um, form that sits on front of the drawers. Essentially, it's a drawer handle for any, for lack of better explanation. But really, the, again, it's, were you struggling with the function of making this uh, actually be drawers? Or was there a reason that this is actually a functional piece in some ways, instead of just being a purely a sculpture divided up into 31 segments? There's absolutely a reason why that piece is functional. And um, that's the last overtly functional piece that I've, I've made that at, at least in terms of cabinetry. Um, and the, the idea behind that piece, I guess, just to finish off the thought I was getting to earlier is that um, the overall idea is to look at these long-term trends in snowfall. So essentially each drawer front shows you the graph of how much snowfall there is from the beginning of the season to the end of the season in any given year. So some of the drawers stick out much farther because that was a very heavy snow year and some of them are very shallow and that's because it was a very like minimal snow year but um in terms of deciding which blips of data to remove any data scientist will make similar decisions about how to filter to get at the essence of the 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 main idea so if i'm looking at a big long-term trend in data um having a little tiny blip of a snowfall that happened early in the season and then completely melted away, I was fine removing that from the data set in the, um, to, to direct the attention at the long-term trend that is the focus of this piece. And the reason that it is functional that I ended up making these carved graphs into a um, drawer front is that the drawers directly correlate, the size of them directly correlates to how much water we have in the snowpack on any given year. So the whole piece is about connecting how you live your life and certain limitations and what you can put in a drawer to this bigger force of a natural pattern of, of this beautiful pattern that happens in nature where um, snow falls and is stored in the snowpack and then will slowly melt off in the summer and release to, you know, the natural places that, and, and human purposes that we need water for until the next season happens. So it's both having a reverence for that beautiful natural phenomena, as well as directing a connection between how we as people live our lives so the, and connecting so the, it to oh, that it makes perfect phenomena. Sense. So the drawers, in a sense, are totally conceptual. 
they're they're not functional in in a sense of they were meant for something somebody to put something in them. They're conceptual in the sense that they represent that amount of storage and that snowfall year. And that's actually that's amazing. That's the beauty of that concept is is actually mind blowing. Well, and since this is like a woodworking focused podcast, I don't usually say this, but the width of every drawer is different and the height of every drawer is different. So I literally had to make 31 drawers that are all different sizes. It is not the most efficient way to build a piece of furniture by any means. I've actually built two different versions of this piece using different data sets. So one is from they're from two different sites in the Sierra Nevadas. And I will never build another one. I, I know exactly how you feel, Adrian. I have a, a cabinet that I've built 14 or 15 of, and I've got eight drawers in them and they're all a little bit different. It's not quite 31, but, but mm-hmm. dang, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, I end up having spreadsheets that have like, you know, drawer one, drawer two, and the height, width, that height, width, you know, and it just, uh, you'll also notice if you look at the photo of the the cabinet that each segment of year, essentially, is a different height. So that's um, making the casework for that piece. You have to be extremely systematic about every rip cut and every cross cut you make, um, you have to keep them in order. I use like blue tape with like, like the year written on it for every single piece as I go to keep everything systematically in order. Otherwise it, you end up with a puzzle that you can't get back. And that's together. probably one of the main reasons I left building functional objects is that that kind of, that kind of precision always, I never enjoyed. And the beauty of at least doing the kind of work I do is I just go at it. And if the proportions don't work, I change them. <laughs> mm. I love precision, but only if the ends call for it. So like if I believe in the idea and what it's conveying as like an interesting concept that expresses snowfall patterns, then I will absolutely spend 10 weeks just like figuring out exactly how to cut every part. But if it's just to make a cabinet for someone's house that they're going to put their shoes in. I, I don't need to spend my time making that. It I, I love that you put all that time and all that research into something that then looks very free form and organic. It's almost completely counterintuitive that, that all that research went into something that I think it's so important that you have that story behind it. Because otherwise somebody might look at it and be like, oh yeah, they just like just free carving and crazy like that. But it's not. It's like, I, I love looking at it and realizing that I'm I'm pointing at my other screen over here, <laughs> like I'm pointing at the picture. Um, that it's more than just that those lines on the front that make it look topographic. It's way way deeper than that. Yeah, I I sometimes wish I could just like, and I've been doing this a little bit more yeah. for side projects, just freeform carve things without it relating yeah. to a data set because it's quite freeing and you can still make really cool object but i i end up ultimately it, it's not as right because you you're sort of disassociated right you've disassociated the the process from the actual concept yeah but it is also really nice sometimes to not be beholden to this bigger idea just to to carve something for fun but what i really enjoy is that uh, this is woodworkers will look at some of those earlier pieces in particular that are very woodworking heavy or very technically sophisticated and they they will be drawn in by the yeah. the use of material 
because it's something they're familiar with. And then they will be introduced to these other interdisciplinary concepts. Like they will never have thought, oh, that's a tide chart. They'll figure it out when they read the title of the piece, though. And that, I think, is the bridge connecting disciplines that really keeps me interested and and motivates me in continuing to make that kind of work. Because in the same way that someone who recognizes tide charts might be drawn into the way that those pieces are constructed and be exposed to new ideas in form or sculpture or woodworking. So bridging those those like yeah, disciplines I, is I really hate to be nitpicky, but to me as well. I will be. Well, um, Eric, it's because you're geeking out right now. Eric, <laughs> Eric, Eric majored in geography in college, so he's specifically math. So I was a map maker. Map making, so. yeah, right. But uh, no, I love your explanation right now is actually totally what this podcast is about. Because at one point you said this is a woodworking podcast. And it's not a woodworking podcast in the sense that it is a podcast for people that work with wood. And we're trying to bridge all those gaps in terms of everything from furniture makers and people that work in, you know, classically trained in furniture, like B.A. Harrington, who then take it somewhere else. And those people that are actually just build functional objects. So this is, in that sense, this isn't a a woodworking podcast. And um, so we seldom, we seldom talk about, you know, technique. Yeah, we like to say it's not a tool talk, but, but, but you, but you have to talk about tools sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, we're not going to get in there and like, I love talking about tools. You ever sit at a table with a bunch of woodworkers? It inevitably is going to go to what accident happened, you know, recently. <laughs> Yeah, I love I love that. I love geeking out on that stuff. I mean, when it comes down to lifestyle, I feel like deciding to be an artist or a a woodworker, a furniture maker, whatever people define themselves as, because nobody likes to be put into a box, right? What whatever choice you've made, it's more about choosing the kind of lifestyle. And I love being a part of a wood shop and the kinds of random conversations and the people that both you know, are into technical stuff and using machines, but also like creating things, whether they're functional or not. And none of them are employable. They all work for mm-hmm. themselves. That's me. Like, I feel like I found my people in a way, even though my work is not always reflective of being made in a work wood shop. I, I don't make everything out of wood yeah. um, by any means, but that's definitely the culture and the kind of lifestyle well, actually, that I, I think have that's chosen our next and t-shirt. embraced. Why make? None of us are employable. <laughs> All right. I've already started designing it. So, so after, <laughs> yep. yes, yeah. you're already designing yeah. it. Why make? None of us are employable. No, so that uh, actually that, you know, we're just rolling along here. You're So we just said we never talk, we never geek out about, you know, talking about tools and stuff, but we're going to ask you about some, well, not necessarily. We're going to ask you about technique because, you know, the last two people we've interviewed, you and Jason Schneider, and Jason works with cardboard, again, a, not a material I'm familiar with or, or how to work it. And you work with a lot of digital techniques and processes. So I, I, I sort of think we need to have you get in the weeds a little bit and, and describe some process and techniques and, and, uh, and tools in terms of how you get from data to sculpture. Yeah, that's always a good question. I know you've been you've been teaching some pretty new concepts. I don't know if they're new, but you know, uh, higher technology forms. I I mean, you're currently teaching some classes at Anderson Ranch right now. So maybe you could talk about that and how that 
kind of overlaps with some of the techniques that you use. Right. And I think the important thing, obviously, to place this in time and place is that uh, these are virtual classes because in this time and place, we can't teach in person. Well, and what better time to try and brush up your skills on, exactly. on computer technology, <laughs> right? If you're stuck at home. Um, I mean, I, I think I'd like to start off this part of the conversation with the caveat that I, I view technology as a tool. Um, it is another tool in the tool belt to help you achieve an idea, and the idea takes precedent. And um, I do not believe that there is any work coming straight off of a machine, a digital fabrication machine that is that is highly crafted or worthy of being called art without the some extra steps to have that object transcend itself um, from the right the process that created it is just one step so i use i my approach to digital technology is very much from that perspective and i will i i don't use it on every piece i feel like in certain pieces the data sets that i use require a certain degree of accuracy in translating either if it's a map or you know a line um, i can more accurately translate those forms using digital technology to help me do that as a step in the process. Ultimately, if I use a, a CNC router to cut parts, those parts come off the machine with rough edges. I reassemble them, glue them up, carve them. I, I continue to work with those parts um, until they have, have completely uh, basically removed the evidence of the machine that created them. Um, and I do that with all of my work. So yeah, all of my work does that. Um, the, the process that I'm teaching right now through Anderson Ranch is called photogrammetry. And um, I started using this process because I found that CAD modeling, so using software in a computer to try and model very curvaceous, organic, um, forms that a lot of my work calls for is is extremely um, difficult to do when you're working in a program that relies on geometric structure to draw a form. So I, I found myself hitting a wall working purely in a computer program to try and visualize and realize the objects that I wanted to make. Um, sometimes the computer program distorts the data in a way where it, it doesn't feel like it's staying true to the idea that I'm trying to get to. So if that ever happens, I need to take a step back and figure out another way to make the form. So um, an example would be like one of my forms was just completely getting distorted when I lofted the maps into each other in a computer program. So as an alternative, I went back into physical materials and used clay and mesh and um, a, a completely different technique where I had a lot more hands-on control to be able to create the form I wanted to make. Uh, similarly with the process I'm teaching called photogrammetry, it's actually a really great way to sidestep having to model a form from scratch in a CAD program. Um, I just find that when you're thinking in terms of what the program can do, it limits how you're going to build a piece and it limits how creative you can be with how the piece is built. And I don't like being limited creatively. So I, um, I, I have used photogrammetry as a way to have a more immediate translation of an object 
to a digital um, surface that I can then manipulate, slice up, modify, scale, whatever I need to do digitally to make that piece better. And then I can take it back out of the digital realm and cut parts from those um, digital files. So it's a great way to sidestep CAD modeling altogether, to be honest. Um, I am curious though, how does the, how do you get the data into your, into your clay models? I mean, you still have to somehow model that representation so that you know what you're shaping or am I missing something? Um, yes, you do. The, the specific example that, of a piece that I've been able to um, model that is related to maps are the wildfire sculptures I've made more recently. So if you look at those ones, um, they're a series of maps showing how a fire's perimeter grows over time. So there's a timestamp that shows it was, you know, this acreage, and then it, it went this direction, and then it went this other direction. And if you ex- extrude those time-stamped perimeters into vertical space so that the vertical space shows you change over time, you essentially create a three-dimensional map of how that fire grew and changed shape. So I've done a series of work um, on those. Those ones I was trying to use the GIS data in a CAD program to model, and a GIS data for fires is very, um, it has it has problems. It's not always perfect. And the timestamps aren't always um, accurate um, is the best way I can describe it. And so if I print out those perimeters, I've bent um, steel rod into the perimeter shapes. So just the outline of the map. And then I can prop those up in space and create a structural framework that is based on the map but also has the element of time in it. It's a little bit hard to explain with words, but if you look... We are getting very, very wonky, which is is very cool because it actually, you know, it certainly harkens back to my days as, as you know, majoring in cartography. And and for those people that don't know, GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. And Geographic Information Systems are whenever you place, you know, data on a... On, in a one-dimensional field and represent it. And that's probably a crappy definition of GIS, except for the fact that G- GIS is everywhere. It's how every, and you know, when you think of gerrymandering, how are they able to so precisely gerrymander electoral districts? It's because the GIS mapping systems can very accurately take a lot of data about culture, political party, um, population density, and do all these things and come up with the perfect gerrymandered map as they can just about any data. Well, and to go take it back a few steps. So um, photogrammetry, since we haven't really covered what that process is, it's basically a way to create a digital mesh from an object. So to digitize a physical object into something you can use in a CAD program. And the way that it works is you take a series of photographs around an object from different angles. And um, there is software that can stitch those photographs together using different points in the photographs to like reference one photograph to the next. And that's how it creates a, a, a digital surface from the object. So what we're doing in the class and the way that I've used it um, primarily is by using like a, a modeling clay to create a really intuitive sculptural form just directly with my hands. 
Um, once I get that modeling clay to a form I like, then I will use photogrammetry, either a software or an application on a phone. The technology is getting a lot better now, so it's a more accessible. And I'll digitize it, and then I'll use CAD modeling software to slice it up into parts. I can then cut out the 2D parts with a bandsaw out of plywood and then stack them back up, um, glue them together, and then carve them. So it's a great way to, to have a more immediate physical to digital back to physical. And like I said, like one of the main pieces I've done was was not data-based, was more um, inspired by kind of rock stratification is this, this very large bench I made for a client that is kind of, um, it looks like a sculpted rock in a way. It's got a very like smooth surface and it's got kind of, it's not a conventional bench by any means, but it's made out of stacked plywood. And I used this exact process where I started with a small clay model that was maybe three inches by two inches or, you know, about hand size. I scanned it and then using CAD software, I could scale it up to a full eight foot bench that people could actually sit on. Do you take like pictures of like 360 degree pictures of the model? It depends on the software you're using. So yeah, the um, there's, there's a couple apps out mm -hmm. now. Um, if you just search photogrammetry on like an iPhone in the app store, a bunch of them will pop up and you can try them out. Um, none of them are perfect. It's a, it's a process of translation. So it's not going to capture everything about your object. It can't capture clear, shiny, dark objects. It needs to be able to see what the object is. It's somewhat limited by, you know, the camera in your iPhone. Um, and so I would recommend anyone who wants to try it out can look at, look at that. I, but they use this technology for a lot of different purposes. You can use um, drones with lidar, you know, sensors to to do a, a basically a digital scan of like. Explain what lidar is. Lidar is like radar, but for land. So it uses like sound. Yeah, so you can get highly detailed um, information about a landscape um, using lidar sensor technology, and and they do this for for like any kind of. Um, architectural purposes. So if they're trying to like scan an entire city block, you can use photogrammetry to do that. If you're trying to scan an entire interior room, you can do um, photogrammetry. I just saw the, um, I think the Noah just posted recently on Instagram, they have some, some scans using photogrammetry of like shipwrecks from under the sea where they can. So it's being used for a, like a lot of different purposes. The way I'm teaching it is for sculpture and it's smaller It's as accessible objects. as an app on your iPhone that you can then import that data into a CAD program and manipulate it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So explain the explain this long distance class that you're doing with, I need to get closer to my mic, explain this long distance class that you're doing through Anderson Ranch Arts Center. Right. I was supposed to be teaching in person next week and because they couldn't do in person, um, they still wanted to be able to offer the class. So I'm doing all the instruction on how to use the software, how to edit and repair and modify the CAD um, surface, the mesh surface that comes out of the photogrammetry process. And then different ways you can prep that file, either for 3D printing, for laser cutting 2D parts that then get assembled back into the form, or for CNC routing. Um, a solid object. And we're going to cover all three of 
those output methods. And when the students have a file that they're ready to have cut, they'll send that to the ranch. Leah, who runs the, um, I forget what it's called now, but the fab lab, the digital fabrication studios at the ranch will cut out their parts and then ship them back their parts. So it, it's, it is a remote learning class, but for me, um, remote learning still means the students have to do a lot with their hands because no one wants to, maybe some people want to sit on their computer all day, but I feel like a, a more, a better life experience is balancing out how much you're, you're oh, working absolutely. on a computer screen and how much you're working with physical materials. So it's really important to me in this case that they're sculpting their clay objects, they're testing out scanning, and then they get a physical object at the end of this. So that's how the class is set up. The output of the class, so the three options, I, I don't actually have a 3D printer. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't have any digital technology at my immediate yeah. disposal, aside from school. Oh, so you're, you're actually right so, being yeah. legally kept away from school because all that stuff's... Um, we... Well, it's summer, so I was I'm scheduled to start teaching um, first week of September, but we're we're remote teaching, so I need to figure out how to teach woodworking remotely now. And actually, in, in our conversation with BA and Jason, uh, um, Jason said that a lot of you are talking about this. Are you part of that conversation that's happening every week? It, yeah, it's been a helpful group. It's really fun to see. I mean, woodworking is such a small wonderful little world. I, I haven't always felt like I fully fit in because I don't always make things out of wood, but um, it's definitely, yeah, good people. And we're, we've been talking a lot. Just, I, it's even above my um, involvement. I just teach one class usually every other semester because I feel like the more that I teach, the less I have time for my own practice. Um, and, and that's about the right amount for me at this point in time. Maybe I'll teach a lot more when I get into it in the future. But um, so, you know, things like figuring out how to disinfect the shop between students using it or liability stuff, that is is not actually in my realm at all. That's for the people getting paid at school to figure out. But it has been really interesting to think about all of those concerns that we're having about how do you teach effectively like a, a skill-based hands-on um, practice when you can only meet with people through a screen, you know? And we're talking about a lot of schools, I think, that aren't meeting in person are going to have a toolkit that goes out so students can work in their living rooms. And I think that's important because they'll still be doing some of the hands-on um, but how, you know, how do you teach chisel safety when you're not right there? Or how do you say, oh, if you just hold it a little bit differently, you'll get a cleaner cut like that stuff. You know, the, the physicality of the practices, I think woodworking is, is extremely important in terms of the body position and how you hold your body and um, to not have that be an immediate presence is really makes it a lot harder. Yeah, It almost means that you sort of have to think about what skills you can teach and and body position is one of them and certainly learning how to relax it's almost like alexander technique for woodworkers how do how do you stand at a joiner well the, you know there's a way to stand very and there's relaxed there's a way not to stand <laughs> and and there's a way not to stand where you position yourself perfectly over the cutter head and can hurt yourself but uh but no, I mean, these are all, you know, interesting questions that people are having to address. But, you know, the other thing, you know, that both B.A. and Jason said was it's wonderful to have that community to be able to ask the questions, too. And as I've said many times on this podcast, we, 
I sort of feel Rob and I are trying to contribute to that sense of community by by talking with all the makers we talk with. And, you know, as you said before, I mean, part of why we do this is this life, I mean, and being a part of this community. Yeah, and it's people you've known, like, I've known Jason for 15 years. And, you know, like, he studied with Wendy. It is this long lineage. Like, Wendy's in the Anderson Ranch class I'm teaching. It is a small, like, awesome community to stay in contact with. And it definitely helps, you know, emotionally in these times where we're feeling very isolated and you know, having those weekly, bi-weekly, every other week conversations. Just a couple other things that, you know, I think Rob and I want to touch base with. And um, one of them is, is your glacier piece. And I'm Gruink, the, uh, how do you pronounce that? The Gruink? Gruink. G-R-E-W, Gruink. Right. Yeah, Gruink. You know, yeah, good guess. Uh, You know, I'm just really, I'm amazed at the, you're just dexterity and working in different mediums. And the whole notion of basically creating a glacier. I mean, it's an ephemeral piece. It's a performance art piece um, in the whole sense that you created a mold of this glacier. And I'm sure you probably created the mold using actual data from the glacier. And then you filmed it melting. It's just such a wonderful concept. How did how did that piece come about? Yeah, I, um, I do a lot of residencies and I... Uh, I did one in Alaska, in Homer, Alaska, which is right across the the Kachemak Bay from a big ice field, the Harding Ice Field, and Gruink Glacier is one of the glaciers that comes off of that. And it's such a cool, I love Alaska so much. Um, The Arctic is just fascinating. I haven't been there in a while, but I did go back for three subsequent, two to three subsequent years after that residency. Um, so it, when you're in Homer, you can hire a water taxi and they'll take you across to the the peninsula and drop you off. And then they have a scheduled time to pick you up. And there's um, basically hiking trails and cool, you know, you can you can do big loops or there's some cabins, government run cabins you can rent and stay in. And you're basically just kind of off grid and um, in a really, really beautiful natural setting with like moose and bears and glaciers and volcanoes and um alaska is just fantastic so i ended up partnering with a scientist at a research center in homer that studies glacial retreats and he provided a bunch of maps showing how different glaciers in the area were retreating and by how much per year so the earlier observations are from literally like expeditions going to those glaciers and seeing where the end of the glacier was positioned, you know, in the 1800s. And then subsequently, they could do aerial mapping of where the glaciers were were retreating to around the 40s and 50s. And then now it's, it's satellites are all up in, you know, up in space that can track all of the, the ways that glaciers are retreating. So um, in the grand scheme of climate data, our, our data sets have gotten extensively um better and more um, just bigger because of satellite information. And that all happened in the late 70s. So I took um, this data set showing how growing glaciers specifically was retreating, because that's one of the glaciers I personally visited. Um, So again, it all comes back to my own, like, personal experience in a beautiful natural setting and being inspired by that space that leads to the work that's created. And in this case, I, I 
the concept of a glacier is ephemeral. Like they move, they're actually rivers. They literally, if you ever look at a time lapse of a glacier, you can see the ice moving over time. Ice has an amorphous crystalline structure. So it is not static, um, which is fantastic. It's kind of glass is also not static. It, it also kind of moves around. Um, anyways, uh, it didn't make sense to carve a plywood representation of a glacier when the idea is about this ephemeral moving crystalline clear water-based form so I ended up going through the model making process um, of making a mold so I carved a, a plywood positive of the form I designed based on this glacier mapping data and then I made a negative of that mold using silicone and then a two-part mother mold out of um, hydrocal or like a very good plaster so that I could take the mold apart. Um, I ended up, while I was at the ranch, this was after my residency in Alaska at the, at the Anderson Ranch, I had access to a CNC router and a big freezer. Part of the problem solving on that idea is where can I freeze this thing? Yeah, they have big freezers there. Um, that we had access to. And, you know, you live at the ranch for two, two and a half months when you do a residency there. So I did a residency, I think the following year. And that's when I created the video of the piece. So it just really didn't make sense to me aesthetically, materially, to have a carved plywood sculpture represent a glacier. So I went through these extra steps to make it into a, a ice, you know, ice casting. And then um, I'm sure Rob recognizes the site where the melting <laughs> That's the, yeah. um, so you see how there's like smoke billowing out. That's the kiln shed at the ranch. So they actually, they happen to be, That's so I did cool. a few of these filmings. When you work with yeah, natural yeah. materials, people who. Look, yeah. there's Doug Casebeer on the top there running across the roof. <laughs> they just happen to be firing the wood kiln. I think that day I had done, a, I, you have to test when you're working with natural physical material, like same thing with wood, you have to oh, account yeah. for the properties of that material. So ice, it had to be in the freezer mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time for it to get solid enough that it would hold its form, but not completely solid so that it would deform the mold. How, how were you able to tell? Trial and error. So yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I did like, a, <laughs> that's the beauty of doing these residencies. I was at the ranch for an extended amount of time. I could put it in, I'd put it in the freezer like the night before, get up at 5 a.m., set it up and then set up the time lapse. So like, one day it started snowing and I had to take the time lapse down. Like one day, uh, you know, it just didn't work right. The sun wasn't bright enough or, you know, something. So I did it a few times before I captured the whole thing melting in one day. And that day it just happened to be when they were firing the wood kiln. How big is your actual interpretation of the glacier? I'm not going to reveal that. Oh, come on. <laughs> No, that's cool. What a what a what a really amazing. I don't know, like totally circular process. Because if you would have done it out of plywood, it just wouldn't have. That, it would have been like you know, here's a sculpture of a glacier. The end. Yeah, at that point in my in time, I was really getting like I love carving plywood. It's kind of what I go back to just to like have you know, I'm good at it. I can do it. Uh, I usually just use Baltic. I don't want to. I don't really want to carve plywood oh, it, anymore. It's it, really hard. My wrist is getting really <laughs> nasty. I did an experiment. I didn't. I didn't experiment that. That uh, I did a mask series that 
that I collaborated with a painter friend of mine and they were all carved OSB. And it was like, oh my God, that was horrid to carve. I yeah. mean, I love the results, but the process was so awful. Yeah, I, I saw, said, I can't I do saw this a anymore. show in London one time and all the pedestals were made of OSB. Yeah. And it was really, it was a cool contrast. It was like all this 3D design, beautiful, like futuristic welding helmets and things like that. And then these really ordinary OSB pedestals in this really stark concrete and white gallery. And it worked. It worked oh, great. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful material. And I've carved, you know, I did a whole series of... Uh, you know, abstract birds in Baltic birch and uh, they were Baltic <laughs> birds. <laughs> and But after I did about 10 of them, it was like, oh, I've eaten so much Baltic birch. I don't think I can do this anymore. Well, like for the pieces that I've made that directly reflect like rock formations or stratification of rock or um, th- those ones make sense to do in plywood because the material uh, like non-verbally, very intuitively speaks the idea. Yeah. Um. In in just the aesthetic interpretation says like carved canyon. You know. Um. It reminds me of uh David Delthony's big chairs that he did um of uh, like Escalante Utah and like the canyons there and it's just a stratification. Well, and then in in practical terms, um, if you're talking about creating a very accurate representation of a data set, plywood is flat. It's easy to cut in any direction and it's dimensional and you can index it from one layer to the next. So it's very easy to build up a very accurate form using plywood. But ultimately, if the idea is about um, sea ice or glaciers or, you know, wildfires, it doesn't necessarily make sense to use plywood as your material. So it's as it's been described to me, there's the kind of artists that choose their one material and just like do endless variations and evolutions of forms in that one material and they become craft experts in that one thing and I would say that in terms of carving wood I am reaching that point but there's also artists who switch materials all the time and are constantly jumping from one to the next and I've I've done that a lot um, because I want the idea behind the piece and the concept I'm trying to evoke in people's minds to be the driving factor that determines what material I choose so that's why with the glacier piece I did cast ice it's cold it's like it melts it has the properties that convey that idea sorry a car alarm is going off um I did a cast um I uh cast glass piece that had to do with sea ice um formations in the arctic uh related to the Alaska time I've spent in Alaska, but slightly different concept. Um, and then the wildfire pieces I ended up actually doing in, in bronze. Um, I mean, cause actually because... some of the most amazing things that came, you know, non-directly art related, but those amazing melted pieces of, of ovens and cars, they've formed oh, amazing in, pieces in, of, in paradise. Of yeah. That from the fires, yeah, and yeah, in paradise. I mean, these like you know cars that melted into these molten, these incredible molten three D sculptures, and as well as people's uh, you know dishwashers and washing machines, and everything melted because the heat was so intense. And it would seem to me metal would be the perfect expression of that concept. Yeah, and and sometimes the form itself just needs a structure, like a material that is durable but can can be uh, morphed into any like 
completely like undulating thin form. Um, and you can't always do that with wood. Wood has some serious limitations in terms of its structure, you know, short grain, that kind of thing. So, so wood is limiting if, if I want the, the meaning or the concept um, or, you know, the data set to really drive the decisions about how the idea is represented. Um, and that's kind of why I've jumped around in materials yeah, and, and a lot. We got into this with Jason too. Uh, it's just the opposite in the sense that he only works one material, but he's sort of removed the whole notion of preciousness from that material by working something really common. So it's, it's, he's turned the conversation to being entirely about form and structure. It's no longer about, mm-hmm. it's no longer about being wood. It's this common recycled material. And there's just a real beauty in that. Yeah, and he does so many cool things with it that it's almost unrecognizable in certain respects. Sometimes I'm sure sometimes people are like, "What? That's concrete?" Or that's that's cardboard. So, so the work that you've been doing um, rec- most recently is that the the work with fire, or um, what's some of the newer stuff that you've been working on? Yeah, the fire pieces have been more recent. Projects tend to go on for quite a while. So when when you yeah, when you first have the idea, you know, then 10 things come up and you can't actually get to it or you get you get to a point where you like you can't get it to go you're stuck yeah. for some reason and you need to figure out something else to be able to get it to the next stage and I've had that happen a lot. So the fire pieces I started a long while back in um when I did a residency at San Diego State, and um, I initially did the first ones out of clay because it was just a oil-based clay with a metal armature because I had a ton amount of control over how those forms happen. And the reason I was so interested in wildfires is because, um, A, in California, they're a, a huge issue, especially, you know, as climate change happens and droughts get worse. Um, it's every year now we're faced with, like, the potential that you need to be inside wearing a mask for a certain mask amount of time if those mm-hmm. smoke blows the wrong direction from wherever the fire happens to be. Um a different kind of mask for a different kind of reason. And um, that has an, like, uh, that has an immense effect. Like our direct experiences have an immense effect on our emotional states. And um, you can't deny that. Um, The other part of it is that um, the way that we talk about wildfires in society, I see as kind of backwards. We, we, we always describe them as these terribly destructive, like, disasters that destroy people's lives, which in in one respect is absolutely true, but in another respect doesn't acknowledge the fact that wildfires are absolutely essential for healthy forests and have been a part of natural, like long-term natural um, processes and trends for for as as long as forests have mm-hmm. been around. Like native cultures used to do controlled burns because they knew when they came yeah. back the next season, there would be better like resources for them there because certain trees rely on fire for their seeds to spread, right? So so we don't actually acknowledge that there's a limited this whole other side to this phenomena that's happening. And well, and, like, and we don't we also don't address the other point, which is, you know, we've encroached on these areas which are naturally prone to wildfire. Now they're suburbia, right? And in the we put our million dollar houses and we right. And so you've you've now put your you put you put homes and people in danger in areas where they shouldn't have been in the first place. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and people don't always think about that. It's always about you know like you know, but it's, in, in, it's about money, and not in the case of paradise and some of these other um, cities that have burned. But in some cases, those wildfires are burning down people's second and third homes. You know, it's not like their primary residence and their entire livelihood is being lost. And we expect firefighters to go in yeah, there yeah. and risk their lives to save your, you know, your vacation house. So I think there's just, um, I'm, I'm revealing too much of my personal opinion there. I like to keep it very objective in the way that I present the idea. But I, I think that by creating a physical representation that is both sort of dark and beautiful and evocative, we can start to have some of these conversations about what wildfires um, are really, you know, how, what role they play in society and how we can understand them in a healthier way if we just start to, like, consider all, all sides. Um, and I think through sculpture, you can start to do that. So to get back to, like, what purpose does sculpture serve? No, its function is not to, like, hold your coffee cup or to, like, a place to hang your coat. It might be just a pretty thing in the corner of your house, but it can also be this vessel by which we can convey ideas. And essentially that's what objects and artifacts throughout history have the potential to do. And that's why I'm interested in creating physical manifestations of these ideas, because they can carry those ideas in a way that is more intuitive than just talking about them or through normal news media outlets or through charts and graphs that a lot of people don't know how to read necessarily or can easily be manipulated. So um, I think physical artifacts are where uh, a huge potential for communication lies um, outside of verbal and written language. And that's, that actually seems to be the perfect place to leave it, I think. So uh, Adrian, it was a lovely conversation. I'm glad you were able to join us on Why Make. Thanks. And uh, Why Make? Why Make? Thank you. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.